Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 582 of the podcast and it is Monday the 1st of November 2021 as I record this quite early (laughs) because the show's going out soon. Two more months left of the year and as ever lots to get done. So in today's show I'm talking about writing and podcasting poetry with Mark McGuinness. Mark is a friend of mine, so we have a fascinating conversation that is a little bit about poetry and much more about how we balance art and money, how some books are about serving a community and others are more about validation and ego, how you have to choose the game you want to play per book and much more. Mark has been on the show several times before and he helped me through the beginning of the pandemic when we were all struggling to create. Check out that interview in episode 484, How to Stay Creative in Difficult Times, a lockdown special. And of course, Mark has two podcasts, The 21st Century Creative and his new show, A Mouthful of Air, about poetry, which we talk about in the interview coming up soon. In publishing and book marketing news, well, I think the biggest news this week is Facebook has rebranded as Meta aiming to bring the metaverse to life and help people connect, find communities and grow businesses. Meta will be the overarching company and then Facebook, Instagram and Oculus, amongst others, will sit below that. A bit like Google, which is now just one brand underneath Alphabet. Now, if you are a regular listener to the show, you'll know I'm not a particular fan of Facebook. I'm not a particularly chatty person. I use social media for what it is and don't spend tons of time on it. And of course, Facebook, the company, has many issues which are currently being laid bare by a whistleblower in hearings in the US and the UK. I also hate that they have chosen the name Meta because it turns a word that many people already use into something that now has a different meaning. But all emotion aside, we are creatives and we are business people. And right now, many of us, including me, do use Facebook as part of our author ecosystem. And actually, I really love Instagram (laughs) and I like putting pictures on Instagram. Uh, So we do use Facebook as uh, for ads, for community, for support, for marketing, for some people, for social reasons. (laughs) And whatever you think of Mark Zuckerberg, and I'm sure we all have many thoughts, He is certainly capable of driving a vision forward and turning an idea into reality. So if we can put aside the emotion, and this is what I think about a lot of this technology that's emerging that I've been talking about, obviously, on the show, you have to take away the emotion and try to look at things from a creative and a playful and a business perspective. So uh, Mark Zuckerberg's founder's letter from October 28th, 2021 states... We are at the beginning of the next chapter for the internet, and it's the next chapter for our company too. So those words, we are at the beginning of the next chapter for the internet, that's how I, and I I agree with that. I feel a lot of the stuff that I've been talking about on the show for the last at least 18 months and and really before that as well around AI and everything, things are, are going to change. The next decade is going to change the way we do things. The ecosystem we have been using for the last decade to 15 years uh, since I started in this space is going to change. So the metaverse is coming and you could call it the next iteration of the internet, which is what Mark Zuckerberg is calling it. It's like what the internet will look like next, essentially. And it will provide so many opportunities for us as creators. If you consider what uh, the existing internet has done for us as creators, think what the future could possibly be. And Meta, the company... will only be one aspect of it. And this is so important. There's been tons of criticism, obviously, of of the rebrand. But uh, I think I've been listening to a few things from Mark Zuckerberg. I've been trying to take the emotion out and really 
I don't think he is intending to be the only, well, he can't be. The metaverse is will be like the internet. There will be new companies. There will be, we'll all experience different parts of it. So my husband, for example, uh, Jonathan, he he spends a lot of time on Reddit. He likes YouTube. Uh, so that's, a, I don't do much on those sites on the internet, to be honest, but uh, we will all play in different parts of the metaverse. There will be different companies. And for more on my thoughts on the metaverse, listen to episode 568 on the metaverse for authors and publishing, VR, AR and the spatial web. So that's episode 568, only a few few weeks ago, I guess. I also listened to an episode on the Unchained podcast this week called Is the Metaverse Already Here? Which was very interesting if you want to get deeper into this area. It also explains more about how NFTs might work in the metaverse, as well as uh, digital ownership and provenance. And also, I think they just that that question, is the metaverse already here? And uh, it's sort of... Um, that idea that we won't go from day one, it's this, and then the next day, it's everything's changed. That's not how technology works. It creeps into different areas at different times. And I mean, of course, podcasting, for example, I was listening to podcasts before I started my own, obviously. (laughs) But it was probably a couple of years before. And that was, I guess, like 20, uh, I don't know, 2006 or something like that. And then I started my own in 2009. And then other people and then it really started to take off in 2014 I think and then 2016 loads more money came in the space and so things things change right um the metaverse is still a futurist concept for many people for example if you asked how does the internet how is the internet going to work in the mid 90s and the late 90s what people how people thought the internet would work is quite different to how it's turned out today. So we can talk about how it might work or how the mobile web was going to work, how everyone would be on their cell phones. Did we think that back in 2007? These things don't go mainstream for a few years until the tech becomes readily available, the tech drops in price, there are different use cases, or people start using it at work, for example. And and one of the reasons this is all sped up is because a lot of people have been using online working spaces Spaces during the pandemic. So that's one of the reasons things have accelerated. Now, uh, I'm personally waiting for Apple to release their glasses or a headset, because that might be a tipping point in the same way that the iPhone was a tipping point for mobile. And that is coming for sure. It might be 2022 or 2023. But um, yeah, interesting times. And as ever, you have heard me say this many, many times. How do we manage the possibilities ahead? Well, yes, keep writing, (laughs) keep creating new intellectual property assets and make sure you don't license all your rights away so you can take advantage of whatever might come. Stay curious, stay playful, and I will keep roaming ahead and sharing what I learn. So basically on that, um, on meta, please don't throw out the idea of the metaverse because you hate the idea of the company previously known as Facebook. Let's try and keep the two separate. So on other futurist things, I hope you found the interview with Jessica interesting this week around NFTs, if you had a listen uh, listen to that. And I have another extra show coming this week with the founders of Creatokia, which looks like the first major player in the NFTs for books space. With all these technologies, uh, like the emergence of digital publishing over 15 years ago, you need to understand intellectual property rights. So this week, I did a long blog post. I actually spent about two days writing this blog post and editing it and trying to make it the best, most useful thing. It's called You Are a Writer you create and license intellectual property assets. Link in the show notes as ever. This, uh, please, please read it because it goes into the different uh, ways we can license rights, but also does reflect on how NFTs fit into it because I'm, I'm concerned that people are signing away rights that might stop them Uh, doing things in the future. So if you don't know what rights you've signed away through contracts with publishers, uh, if you're traditionally published, or remember indies, you have also licensed your rights when you sign terms and conditions on websites like Amazon KDP, Kobo, Apple, Drafter Digital. Every time you use a website to publish, you are also signing terms and conditions which which are essentially a contract or 
uh, ACX or Findaway or any of these sites, you are still signing contracts in the same way that a traditional publisher, a traditional, traditionally published author will be signing a contract. So we might sign lots and lots and lots of contracts for lots of different uh, websites, but we're still agreeing terms. So if you want to make sure you can make a living as a creator for the long term, please read the article. And also, when I put it out, I sent an email to my list and sent the link. And I had an email back from an author who said, it's all very well talking about intellectual property rights, but how exactly do we exercise those rights? And so in that way, that's why I think uh, there's some misunderstanding because there are two broad ways. The, how you exercise those rights is you license your rights to publishers or you exercise those rights yourself, which is what I talk about mainly on this show as an independent author. Now, we sign some contracts with some publishers like Foreign Rights, for example, or we self-publish and we upload books onto different stores and we sell them directly uh, or we, we do various different things. So self-publishing is just as much about licensing intellectual property as going with a traditional publisher. And it was quite interesting to me that uh, this person did not really understand how we exercise those rights and uh, everything we talk about in the kind of self-publishing indie space is about exercising intellectual property rights. And uh, Christine Catherine Rush has been writing about intellectual property for many years. And it was Chris, as well as Dean Wesley Smith, her husband and business partner, and also Orna Ross from the Alliance of Independent Authors, who taught me about intellectual property. I remember being a new author and not really getting it. I thought I was just writing books. (laughs) So it certainly takes a while for the penny to drop. But when it does, you step through the looking glass into a whole new world of possibility. Now, Chris actually posted an article this week on how IP, how intellectual property, is the new front list. So front list is a traditional publishing term for the new books being promoted to the bookstores. The backlist is everything they published before. Chris says the problem is that most indie writers follow the traditional publishing model on everything. Indies put all their hopes and dreams and money into the newest book. They ignore their backlist. They think the only thing that has value is the book they're releasing right now. But actually, writers need to focus on the project that makes the most sense to promote. Chris says, readers don't care about new. They care about new to them. And I think that's, it's totally true. I mean, you know, you might discover a new author and then go and read their whole backlist. I certainly do things like that. Uh, So Chris does have some ideas about how to think about promoting um, your backlist. For example, pay attention to what's happening in the culture and promote around that. Also, set up a schedule to revisit your old titles. Rather than constantly improving the new, think about doing covers and uh, new promotion on your older books. It takes a different way of thinking, a way that incorporates all you do as your work rather than just your current project. Okay, in useful stuff, three things this week. First thing, Alex Newton from Klytics is doing a free webinar on how to write for markets that sell. So you will know by now that I am not a data person, (laughs) but I certainly know the importance of understanding data about Amazon in particular in order to pick the right categories and keywords, understand competition in the niche and reach more readers. Luckily, Alex Newton from Klytics is a data geek. (laughs) He loves it. And he shares his analysis in his regular Klytics genre reports. He's doing a free webinar and I know it will be packed full of useful insights. Now it is this week as the show goes out. It is Thursday 4th of November 2021 at 4pm US Eastern, 8pm UK. And you can find the link at thecreativepen.com forward slash nov21. So N-O-V-21, short for November, obviously. So thecreativepen.com forward slash nov21, links in the show notes. And the webinar will cover what drives genre trends and how to spot them, genre winners and losers in the current environment, fundamentals and pitfalls of Amazon sales rank categories and writing to market, how the right Amazon data can save you time, money, creative resources and sell more books. And there's a Q&A with Alex as well. So thecreativepen.com forward slash nov21. 
Second thing this week, it is NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, November. You can go to nanowrimo.org if you would like to write a novel this month. Now, uh, I'll just add a little aside here in that I did NaNoWriMo in 2009 and wrote 20,000 words, and of which about 5,000 words became the seed of Stone of Fire, which kind of launched my fiction side of my business. So even if you don't intend to try and write 50,000 words this month, uh, don't worry, even if you write a few, it could end up being the beginning of something very interesting. So whether you're doing NaNoWriMo or not, we have a bundle of ebooks for authors that is super useful and it's not just for fiction writers either, also for non-fiction. So do you want to learn more about the writing craft and business of being an author and pay what you like for an awesome ebook bundle? The NaNoWriMo Story Bundle is out now with 16 books on planning to write and productivity, how to be a writing machine, discovery writing and plotting, character development, plus tips on publishing from release strategies for indies to avoiding the slush pile slush pile. (laughs) It's easy for you to say (laughs) if you want to go the traditional route, as well as several books on marketing. It's available for a limited time at storybundle.com forward slash nano n-a-n-o. Get a great bundle of books and help more authors sell direct at storybundle.com forward slash nano. Links in the show notes. And finally, third in useful stuff, books2read.com has added print book links for paperback, hardback and large print. So if you don't know books to read, you can essentially up add all your links to a lot of formats uh, and then you can sh- uh, create one link that links to all these different stores. Now uh, you don't it's free to use and set up and it's run by Draft Digital but you don't need to publish through Draft Digital to use it. So that's at books to the number two read.com and you can create one shareable link that uh, goes through into all your different uh, book formats. Okay, in personal news, I'm on finishing energy on way too many things at the moment. I'm working with my book designer on Tomb of Relics. I'm doing a lot of interviews for the podcast. I'm banking a ton of interviews because I'm off to New Zealand in a few weeks time for the southern summer. And I don't know what my um, setup's going to be in terms of uh, controlling my the noise and internet connection and all that type of thing. Uh, so I'm I'm doing all that kind of bit, the thing. Now, the, pan, the pandemic hits different places at different times and essentially over here in the UK it feels pretty normal to be honest Uh, we're back out doing everything and some people wearing masks but a lot of people not wearing masks cases are dropping for now at least and uh, it's weird going over to New Zealand because it's really just kicking off over there so uh, but we are going even if we're going to be in lockdown for months (laughs) So it's going to happen. And in fact, if we're in lockdown, I'm going to get a lot of work done. So who knows? I will update you as that goes. But um, I'm also still working on the AI course, which I should start recording uh, probably next week. I'm almost finished with the prep. I've had such a good time with preparing this course, learning a lot uh, about all the different things available for uh, AI and authors. I also have a new book out in French. <laughs> Ready for this? Comment gagner votre vie en encrivant. Écrivant. <laughs> if you're French, you're, I'm sorry. Uh, it's the third edition of How to Make a Living with Your Writing. If you read or listen in French, there are now a number of my books available in French, which have been licensed through a publisher. These are not AI translated. These are um, with a, pub- a French publisher. So, yeah books in French available on all the usual stores. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week. Ingmar said, what a great interview. I appreciate Corrie's honesty and vulnerability. Keep them coming. And CH said, thank you, Joanna and Corrie, for this episode. I loved Corrie's input about the emotional part of telling the story, but also being able to shift and put the marketing cap on when it comes to presenting the story to the public. Very brave and inspirational. And Bernie Anderson said, just finished the podcast episode with Jess Artemisia and feel like an entirely new world just opened up before my eyes. And that's the NFT show. And Becky also emailed and said, OMG, just listened to the interview with Jessica Artemisia. Mind blown. (laughs) 
My new dream is to become a law master. Glad you clarified what that was. Can't wait to see what you do with your NFT. And yes, thank you to everyone who uh, tweets and emails and leaves comments on the show notes. You can tweet me at the creative pen. You can email me, Joanna at thecreativepen.com, or you can leave a comment on the YouTube channel, on the show notes, on the blog, etc. I love to hear what you think about the episodes. It really helps me to feel like this is more of a conversation. So today's show is sponsored by my list of editors at thecreativepen.com forward slash editors. Do you need an editor or a proofreader? Do you need someone to help you make your book the best it can be? On my editors page, I have a list of professional editors and proofreaders, as well as a tutorial on how to find and work with an editor in the most effective way. The list is separated into two. Uh, I am an affiliate for some of the companies, which is very obviously marked, and I receive a small percentage of the sale at no extra cost to you. And then there is a massive list of editors recommended by my community, you guys. So you have lots of options to choose from. You can click through to the various sites and look at the genres each specialises in and find out their rates. So if you need a professional editor or proofreader, and let's face it, we all do, (laughs) then head on over to thecreativepen.com forward slash editors. So this type of sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons, especially all these extra in-between-isodes I'm doing at the moment in terms of futurist stuff. Thanks to all my patrons, wonderful people who've been supporting the show for months and years, and also for new patrons this week, Gabby Olbers and Jennifer Fryer. You can support the show with just a few dollars or pounds or whatever currency a month, a couple of coffees a month if you're feeling generous and you'll get an extra monthly Q&A audio where I answer your questions. Uh, You also get money off my ebooks, audiobooks and courses so it might be worth it if you're going to be interested in my AI course for example. You can support the show at patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right let's get into the interview. Mark McGuinness is an award-winning poet, non-fiction author, and creative coach. He's also the host of two podcasts, The 21st Century Creative and his new poetry show, A Mouthful of Air. So welcome back to the show, Mark. Thank you, Joe. It's always nice to be here. Indeed. You've been on the show a number of times, so we're not going to get into all of that. But today we're focusing on your poetry, which is exciting. But I wanted to start by asking around the integration, I guess. You've been running this successful creative business for many years. So what part does poetry play in your life in terms of creativity? And does it play any part in the business side? Well, for me personally, poetry is is the bedrock. You know, it's the foundation of who I am and everything that I do. In terms of writing, it's the most fulfilling kind of writing that I read and also to write. I mean, there's nothing else that comes close, really. Um, so all my my writing about creativity, my work as a coach, they're really side effects of the poetry. And that's not to diminish them because I do love, I absolutely love doing them. And I love the fact that I get to do lots of different things a bit like you, but really poetry is at the center of my universe. You know, if there was no poetry, there wouldn't really be much point to the rest of it. So they, they really go hand in hand in that way. Creatively though, I think of poetry as completely separate from everything else I do. You know, I love the fact that it's a different world and I can do what the hell I like there. I mean, there's no commercial considerations. There's no money at stake. I don't think that's any great secret about the poetry world. So I have a lot more freedom than a writer who's who's has to keep an eye on the market, you know, that their business is maybe based on a, a selling a certain volume or something like a movie studio where there's a committee making decisions in a very risk-averse basis. With poetry, I can, I can basically do what I want. Um, I think the only thing I would say about the poetry and the business having a relationship is that it it does inform the kind of coach that I am. Because I'm a poet, I've got a very strong affinity with creatives of all kind. And so that's who I like to work with. That's my tribe. And on the other hand, I, I hear from a lot of my clients who say, well, the fact that I'm a poet was attractive to them when they were looking for a coach. They knew they weren't going to get the usual corporate style coaching or even necessarily mainstream 
life coaching. I mean, I've never thought of myself in those terms. You know, they like the idea of working with a fellow creative because they know we'll have certain values in common. It's so interesting. You said at the beginning there that your poetry is at the foundation of who I am, which is, let's face it, that's pretty hardcore. And I feel like, I mean, I've read all your nonfiction. I knew you before you knew who I was back in the day, like over (laughs) a decade ago, because you were, I think, about five years ahead of me. And I bought one of your courses early on. And so I've read like pretty much all your stuff. And you do share a lot of personal stuff in your nonfiction books, in your blog, in your podcast. And yet you're basically saying that your poetry is the far more personal side, the more fulfilling side. So this, to me, this is really difficult. And I think about writing memoir and something I'm kind of struggling with. Do you think that your poetry is your more vulnerable side? That Are you more vulnerable to criticism? And you've written a book on criticism. I mean, how yeah. do we find the strength to access, tap into these more personal sides of writing and put ourselves out there in this very vulnerable way? Yeah. Why do you think I wrote a book on criticism? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it was partly me and partly what I was hearing from clients and, and readers. But Yeah, in terms of vulnerability, absolutely. And it's not to say that, I mean, I do write some poems with personal subject matter, but I'm not what's called a confessional poet. It's not you're going to get all my dirty secrets. But even when I'm writing something that's ostensibly about another subject, of course, in the world of poetry, everything's metaphorical. So it's always personal on that level. And I remember when I started doing poetry readings, you know, I'd already come quite a long way out of my introverted shell. I'd forced and trained and cajoled and got myself coached to do a lot of public speaking, for instance, as a psychotherapist and then later on as a coach. And I was really proud of the fact that I'd overcome my fears to the point where I could speak at an international conference. And I even ended up teaching presentation skills. I had a whole course around this. And so I remember thinking, well, okay, I've got this when I was asked to to start giving poetry readings. And I was actually quite annoyed to discover that there was this this whole new level of fear (laughs) involved Mm. in reading my poems to an audience. It was like there were several more layers stripped off me. And I was really exposed on a personal, emotional level in a way that didn't happen with normal public speaking. Um, So in terms of how we deal with it, well, my way of getting over it was working as usual is to find the best teacher or coach that I could find and persuade them to to let me work with them. So I went up to the Orkney Islands off the north of Scotland, and I worked with Kristin Linklater, who was, sadly, she's no longer with us, but she was a legend in acting and voice teaching circles. And she had a specialism in speaking Shakespearean verse and helping actors on the stage to do the, you know, the iambic pentameter with and the big soliloquies and so on with feeling. And so I, I said, look, I'm a poet. Can I come on the course? And she said, yes, you're allowed. You can bring your own poetry. And in total, I spent two weeks up there, two separate occasions. And the first week was, was the foundation. And then the second week I got to, to do the Shakespeare course. And she really put me through the ringer. I mean, there's a story I tell on a mouthful of air about the day that she kind of lost patience with me because <laughs> I wasn't projecting enough. So we all had to read a sonnet, a Shakespearean sonnet as part of our training. And she kept saying, Mark, we're over here. You need to reach us. And eventually she said, look, this isn't working. And she opened the door and she said, right, let's all go outside. And we go outside on this hillside, like a small mountain on this island in the middle of the North Sea. And she says, Mark, you are going to the top of the hill and we are going to the bottom of the hill and you are going to speak your poem in such a way that we hear it and we feel it at the bottom. And of course, <laughs> I was absolutely terrified. But if Kristen told you what to do, you did it. And so I kind of staggered about at the top of the hill, feeling completely ridiculous. And in the end, there was a part of me that just let go and this big voice came out and suddenly I was booming it out all the way across the sea and over to the other island. And it was like the way I thought it was a bit like a Shakespearean version of The Sound of Music, I guess. And I went down the bottom of the hill after that, and there were one or two people who were actually, there were tears in their eyes. So it had connected. 
Mm. And after that, I, I, I really don't care as much. I found myself in readings where I realized I'm the loudest poet in the room <laughs> because something Kristen did, it just, just unlocked the voice and it wants to come out. So interesting. And I, I, that's definitely a good tip for people because I've had plenty of uh, professional speaking training and I can, same as you, you know, speak on big stages and yeah, there's always a little bit of nerves, but it's fine. And yet I still haven't read my fiction work in front of a group. I will always resist that because hmm. it's so much more personal. It's so much more scary and it's almost like your that experience helped you break through that but yeah so a tip for people listening don't just go on a like a public speaking course <laughs> you actually yeah. need to do something that is with work that that means something I guess so I think that's that's super useful I do want to come back you said you're not a confessional poet some yeah. people might if people are not in the poetry community or have only read some poetry or maybe studied some at school what are the just sort of different types of of poets out there you know a lot of people might not realize that there's such a, a breadth I guess yeah, it's a broad church, I guess. And some, so the confessional poets kind of started in the 60s with people like Robert Lowell and Sylvia Plath, who were basically just putting out there their family history, stuff that wouldn't have normally got talked about, personal history, particularly with them around mental health. And they were the beginning of the, well, it's all about bearing my soul and letting and, and just letting everything out kind of thing. And so some poets will still do that now, but others like to take a maybe a more oblique approach. So that's one school. You know, another way you might classify a poet is by the style of the writing. So personally, I write in quite a lot of traditional forms. So I wouldn't call myself this, but some people would label that formalist poetry. It sounds a little bit like formal dress, though, to me. I don't think any writer particularly likes to say I'm a this kind of writer, because we all like to think we're unique and special, don't we? But, <laughs> but you but, particular structures. Yeah, I do. I mean, I do all the, you know, the Shakespearean sonnet and the iambic pentameter. And I love all the old forms, like the medieval ones, the Renaissance ones. They're like magical structures. There's, there's like a almost like an incantatory quality to them. And I think it's it's a shame that so we're in danger of losing that as part of the mainstream of poetry. It is, I think, recent years it's coming back. It comes back in, in waves, so to speak. But certainly that's my default form of writing, whereas I think a lot of poets, their default these days would be to write in free verse. So it doesn't have meter. It doesn't necessarily have rhyme, although it can do. I mean, it wouldn't have a more of a, a set structure, but of course, that's it's its own kind of discipline. T.S. Eliot famously said that there's not really any any such thing as free verse, because there's always constraints in art. But if anybody's listening and you're not plugged into the contemporary poetry scene, just because you read one type of poem and you think, "Well, I'm not sure I like that," there's an awful lot to choose from. You know, just like fiction. So, so don't let any one experience put you off. Yes, I think that's really important. And of course, those those forms, like I've written a pantoum and mm -hmm. other forms like this, and, and the boundaries can actually help us be more creative. I, some people might have tried a haiku, which looks simple, but <laughs> it's not. No. <laughs> These are very basic, I guess basic is one word for it, but it's you have to think about so many things and you have... Uh, fewer words than you do for a book so it is a it's a very different art which is interesting but let's talk about the the poetry podcast a mouthful of air you've got this successful show the 21st century creative which is very tied into your business side and yeah. uh, I've been on it you've had some really big name people on it's a great show highly recommend it to people and I know how we both know how hard it is to do a podcast so why launch a poetry podcast and what is it that the spoken word brings I guess for this it really began very simply with just the urge to share some poems I was looking at my bookshelves which if we were doing this on video, you would be able to see there's shelves and shelves of poetry behind me. And I, I started to think it's a shame if the circle stops with me, if it's just me who reads and enjoys, because I've got so many hours of pleasure and um, sustenance 
from those. And most people don't read poetry. And, and I got to thinking, surely it can't be that hard to invite them in and, and take a book down from the shelf and read it and say, look, isn't this great? And show them what I love about those poems. And so that's a lot of, obviously, famous poets of the past. But also, I know quite a few contemporary poets who write the most amazing things. I mean, I used to go to classes at the poetry school in London and the City Lit. And apart from anything I was learning, you know, everyone would, would read a poem and we would critique it. I would just think it, it was the most fabulous evening of entertainment. I would be getting a, a live performance from about six poets one evening. And it would be really, really high quality and really varied picking up on what you were saying. So I just thought that this should be more widely known. It Wouldn't it be great to, to put these shows on a, put these poems on a, podcast so that other people can enjoy the way I do. And, you know, the more I thought about this, uh, the idea of a poetry podcast, the more I kept going back to the idea that poetry at its roots really is an oral art. I mean, it's older than writing. It, it would be the tribe around the campfire, listening to the voice of the poet or the shaman or the bard or whatever they were called. And they would be telling stories and in song, in verse, in maybe a mixture of the two. And there would be epic tales. There would be tales about the gods and the and heroes and, and the creation of the world and love and betrayal and so on. And that was really how we made sense of our world. I mean, that a lot of the time, the, the poet would be the memory database of the tribe in terms of history and mythology and religion and and sometimes even stuff like botany and medicine and whatever and modern poetry you know we, we don't look to the poet for, for an understanding of life the universe and everything these days in the way that maybe we did once upon a time but poetry is still there as a, an oral art and reading a poem listening to a poem spoken one of the other things i've discovered about podcast and i know you've seen this too it's a really privileged medium because people tend to listen to podcasts in the quiet time of their day, in their me time, when they're cleaning up, when they're uh, commuting, when they're going for a walk. And it struck me that this is a chance to have the poet's voice in your ear in that quiet time of the day. And it can give you you know, it's not going to give you the whole cosmology and meaning of the universe, but Robert Frost put it beautifully when he said, a poem can give you a momentary stay against confusion, a moment of clarity, of not quite certainty or reassurance, but maybe of being earthed or connected to something that feels true, that feels real and authentic. And that's the potential of a podcast is really simply to, to have the poet's voice in your ear doing that and helping maybe maybe helping you make a bit more sense of your world well it's interesting i think now there there are a lot of performance poets as well and even you could say into the rap movement yeah, i yeah, guess and, and yeah, song amazing. lyrics well, yeah people know these off by heart in the mm. songs off by heart because they are essentially poetry and a lot of them rhyme i know not po not all poetry has to rhyme but rhyming poetry in song is a yeah. way that it was the message was carried wasn't it as yes. well yeah absolutely yeah i think of poetry in some ways very much like music and i would say to anybody who doesn't feel confident as a poetry reader Think about it like this. So, for instance, I, I can't read music. I can't play an instrument. I can't sing in tune. But I have strong opinions and tastes in music. And I, I have a brother who is a musician and was a professional musician. And he can explain all the technical stuff. And his knowledge of music is much deeper than I am. But sometimes if we have an, a, a discussion about music, I'll say, yeah, but I just don't like it. I like this instead. And I think I would really encourage you, if you try the podcast, to use it as a way of starting to develop your own taste in poetry. And it, it's not an academic discipline. They tried to turn it into one, but that's not what it is. And so the way I do this on the podcast is I throw you in at the deep end, but then I also throw you a life jacket. So, <laughs> What do you mean so by way, that? <laughs> well, the way this works is, so you, you hear the opening music, but then the next thing after that you will hear is the poet reading a poem. 
if it's a contemporary, if it's a living poet, I get them to come and read it. If it's a dead poet, I'll read it on their behalf. But so often we feel, oh, you need to have it explained to you first and get the Cliff's notes and the you know, the footnotes and whatever. No, you don't. If if it's a good poem, it doesn't need an introduction, and it should have an effect, even if you don't grasp the whole meaning of it all at once. It, and treat it like music, and just think: Does it make you feel something? Does it create images in your mind or emotions? Do do you feel it in your gut? And so that's throwing you in the deep end. You ju- you just hear the poem, whatever it is. But then the life jacket I'm going to throw you is you'll get a bit of context about the poem straight after it. So if it's a, a classic poem, then you'll hear me enthusing about the poem and talking about the background and what we know about the poet and also some technical stuff about look what they're doing here look how this is made how it works and you will get the technical stuff but again it's not academic i'm going to show you how a poet and the old word for a poet is well in greek poet means maker so this is really a craft practical how is this put together uh approach if it's a living poet who's on the show, then I will interview them for about 10, 20, 25 minutes about the poem, where it came from. That's usually the question I start with. And then how it evolved in the writing process. So you've got the poem, you've got your initial response to it, your own experience of it. And then you get a bit of perspective or background about it that that maybe helps to shed some light on aspects that weren't immediately apparent. And then at the end of the show, this is my favorite bit. We play the same recording of the poem again. And even though it's the same recording of the same poem, people tell me it sounds different the second time round because, of course, they've got that bit of context and there's some things that they're listening out for that they're going to notice because we've highlighted them in the interview or, or the commentary. So, so that's the deep end and life jacket approach to poetry. No, I think that's so interesting. And I love that you're delving deeper into the craft side and your enthusiasm for poetry, I think, is is infectious. So basically, if listeners don't know anything about poetry, they'll get something out of it. And then as with poems, I guess, if they already know things, they're going to get a deeper level of meaning, I guess, in these poems. That's right. I mean, I'm trying, really, I've got two ideal listeners in mind. One is a poetry geek like me who lives and breathes this stuff and wants to experience it in a different way. And then the other is the person who's, you know, cultured, read, reads a lot, but reads probably anything but poetry and giving them a way into it. And yeah, I guess one of the, the other things I try and do with, particularly around the questions with the poets is if you ever read a poem and you, your first response is what? <laughs> or hang on a minute. Did I, I don't get it. Or did I, does it mean whatever? I try and ask all of those questions to the poet. So if you've ever had that response to a poem, then tune in to A Mouthful of Air and you're going to hear me grilling the poet <laughs> and mm. saying, so, come on, what are we supposed to get from this? Or um, am I am I being dumb or whatever? So it's just opening it up and not being so precious about it. Yeah. Not being precious about poetry is actually really important, I think. <laughs> we all get so het up, like so serious about all this stuff. I think probably because so many of us did it at school. You know, if I, yeah, I did poetry at school and it was very serious and very important. <laughs> oh, well, that's right. I got a lovely email from a reader the other day who said, I used to run screaming from poetry, but now you've opened the door and you've shown me. And actually, it, it can relate to me. And I, I think a nice example of this is I have my longtime teacher and mentor, Mimi Calvati, a really wonderful poet. And she's just published a, a lovely book of Petrarchan sonnets called Afterwardness. And of course, when you hear the word Petrarchan sonnet, you think, my goodness me, that's going to be elevated and on a pedestal and a bit remote. But the poem that she read is called Eggs. And when I asked from where did you get the um, the inspiration for it? She said, well, I ordered a fried egg in my local cafe and it's about an egg. And she's got this wonderful theory about how eggs are like Petrarchan sonnets. So you'll have to listen to the, the episode to, to kind of untangle that. But hopefully that gives an idea of the, the down-to-earth aspect of it, mm. even, even with something as as revered as such a an old verse form. 
Well, the other thing I think is really interesting is intellectual property. I think this is super important to talk about because you mentioned living poets and dead poets. <laughs> so in terms of the intellectual property of being able to read a poem on uh, in audio format, because this is one of the issues, like a lot of people want to quote poetry in their work or song lyrics, yeah, and you yeah. can't usually because they're so short, it can't possibly come under fair use. So how are you dealing with the intellectual property side of the show? I'm doing my best to be scrupulous about it. So that what that means is old poets does mean old poets. So it, it's stuff that's out of copyright. So Shakespeare's not going to sue me for using his <laughs> sonnet. Chaucer's probably not going to get too annoyed if I do a bit of one of his poems. And for the contemporary poets, I'm checking with each poet, you know, who is the license holder or you know who needs to sign off? And often it's the publisher and we're getting the publisher to, to sign off and say, yes, we're happy. And I'm pleased to say the publishers are happy to do that. And because obviously we're with each poet, we're showcasing a poem from typically from their latest book and encouraging listeners to, if, well, if you like this one, then go and buy the book. So yes, absolutely. You've got to be super careful. And it's the same with song, song lyrics. It's so easy to think, oh, I just put a couple of lines in my story because the characters are in a bar and that's the song that's playing and it, it related to them. But no, you can't, you, you really can't do that. You have to be super careful. That's why I wanted to mention it. So let's talk about the interesting uh, poetry publishing side, because yes, poems are great when they're performed uh, by voice, but they're yeah. also a lot of them on in books. I have a lot of poetry books too. They're designed in print to look a certain way on the page. So yeah. I feel like a lot of people set them out in certain ways. Some people format things, say, without capital letters, or they mm -hmm. have things running onto different lines that you would have put just in a sentence if it was, yeah. if it was prose. So talk about what are the options with publishing? Why is print so important for poetry, I guess? And, and what are the options for poets in terms of the different publication routes? Uh, and what are you doing? Well, actually, print isn't necessarily important for all poets. I mean, Homer may or may not have, have written it down. He is dead. <laughs> or, or herself. Like I say, it started off as an oral um, medium and to this day as you said there are performance poets who say the real thing is the the live experience with the or with the audience and the book is like a souvenir to them and they say it's not the real thing you should judge say don't judge me by the book judge me by the show so it's a wonderful kind of hybrid i think of it as an amphibious form it, it can live in the water or on the land and you know, talking to the poets sometimes, it's you, you can see that the way it's laid out on the page may or may not have a really strong relationship to the way they read it out loud. But in terms of publishing options, it, the poetry world is very conservative, folks. It's maybe think of the fiction world about 10 or 20 years ago. I mean, there are indie poets, there is an indie poet scene, but that's not the route I have taken. And I know this was this has raised eyebrows in a few quarters because I'm, all my nonfiction I do publish independently because I like to be in control of it and do it my way. But I'm going the traditional route for the actual publication of the poems, but I'm also having my cake and eating it by having a podcast where I get my direct relationship with the audience. And one big reason for going the traditional route is it's a very practical one. And that is that I want to reach the readers who love poetry the most. And right now, as a general rule, those people are far more likely to read poetry that is presented via a publisher. So if I decided to self-publish my poems, which I could do, I know how to do it technically, I would be missing out on that core poetry readership. And I don't want to do that. You know, I do want to reach a wider audience as well, but I also want to reach the real enthusiasts. We can argue about whether that's that's fair or that's the way the poetry world should be, but I think sometimes as authors and creatives, we need to deal with the world the way it is rather than the way we think it should be. And for instance, if you're writing genre fiction and you know, romance or science fiction or thrillers, and you say, well, I don't like ebooks, 
I, I, to me, a, a real book is a print book. So I'm only going to publish in print. You're going to miss out on a lot of the hardcore readers of that genre. So that one big reason is just that practical access to the readership that I want. Another reason is more of an artistic one, which is one big misconception about poetry is, is we often think it's a solitary art, that it's all about the individual poet channeling their visions and expressing their unique talent. And obviously there is some truth to that, but if you read a lot of poetry, after a while you realize it's more like a massive group writing project that's happening across space and time and even between languages. So if you read any significant poet, you're going to find ideas and allusions and references and poetic forms that have come from other poets and quite often translations or rewritings or answering back to other poets' work. So to me, writing poetry means being a part of that conversation with other poets where you're reading each other's work and responding to it and discussing it and so on, as well as the ghosts of the past. And right now, if you want to be part of that conversation, then it's much harder to do that as a self-published author. It's it's very much expected you'll have a publisher and that will be your entry into that world. So, so that's the route I'm going. Those are the main reasons. I mean, there's other things like print quality. So the average poetry book is typically 60, 70, 80 pages. And you try getting, was it Kindle print to, to align the spine properly on a book that that's thin, you know, the title on the spine. And also a lot of the, the poetry publishers really do go to town in terms of print quality and font and paperweight and presentation. So there's that, the experience of reading the book and holding it and being in a way that it's a beautiful object to contemplate. So all of those kind of combine together that at the moment, traditional publishing is, is the main game, I'm afraid. Well, I'm still going to challenge you on it because there are plenty of people, for example, who will work with a printer to do a beautiful print object, which is the same printer as the poetry publisher might use. And there's lots of ways to reach people in different mediums and ways to uh, get a poetry audience to buy that book. But so I want to go back to what you said at the beginning about your poetry being the foundation of who you are and ask whether it's really about validation and acceptance of peers and the deeper side of being a creator and a poet. I mean, you're an award-winning poet. Awards, I feel, are part of validation. And I also feel that a publisher that is known for great poetry is validation for your art. So forget all the side of marketing and print quality. Is it really about validation? From the ego's perspective, yes, of course. But that's important. Have, yeah, that's important. Yeah, sure. So we all have an ego and that's part of it. But, you know, I have gone back and forward and thought about this. And partly is I love the poetry world. I mean, it's easy to think of gatekeepers as being, you know, the big bad enemy, etc. But the poetry world, it's not like there's a lot of money at stake. Nobody is in this for the money. They're all enthusiasts. And I've grown up with this world. I've been grown up reading certain publishers and enjoying their output and the style of work that they put out there. And, and I, I want to be part of that world and play that game. And the idea of going and printing my own books and being supervising a printer and, and storing all of that, it just doesn't excite me. Yeah. And obviously I'm challenging you and I feel the same way. I feel like you, you're an indie, an indie author for your nonfiction. We have our money-making books and then we have our books that are art and our books of our heart, for example. And I, yeah, I, I want to win an award for my fiction. I want to, I don't know whether I want traditional publishing, but I probably still do. I still think that's part of the validation of, of the industry. So I think it's important for people listening, separate the business side and the money-making side from the art. Sometimes it doesn't have to be both, does it, all the time? Well, there's always something that you can get attached to. If you're writing in a more commercial field, you can get attached to the money or a field that has got a wider audience. You could get attached to fame. In poetry, yes, of course, it's very easy to get attached to the whole professional reputation and um, peer 
you know, review and and how you're seen within that community. But whatever field that you're in, there's going to be some temptation for the ego. And one thing I say to my clients, because I, I get all kinds of different versions of this from different clients. I get some artist clients who will come in and say, well, I don't know if I want to play the gallery game or and have my work represented in, in you know, high-end galleries and, and, and introduced to people in a certain way, or if I'd rather just go direct and sell it and have an online presence. And what I say to clients is, well, play the game you want to play, because whatever you do, there's going to be an upside and there's going to be a downside. And it's all a game. But you've got to think about the game that really appeals to you, that you think, you know what, I would enjoy playing that as well as I think I'd have a reasonable chance of competing. Mm, and you can play a different game for different projects. And I think that's yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And we're so lucky to have the choice now. There used to be only one game, and now there's lots of games. It's just you can't, I don't think you can play the same game with the same book. That's important. No, you, you can't. And also, even within the same world. So, like I said, I'm having my cake and eating it. So, I have, I'm going the traditional route for the, the actual publication. And that's got its own rewards and frustrations. It moves very slowly, for instance. But then having the podcast as a direct, like I say, a visceral medium where I've got uh, my own platform, my own voice in the world. And weirdly enough, there's a stigma against self-publishing poetry, but people quite admire the fact that you can make a podcast. So that's a weird kind of loophole in the poetry world, (laughs) So, which I'm quite happy. But I do think you want to, if you're going to think about this, maybe from a slightly more strategic perspective just think about if you want to do well at at whatever game it is you choose then you just think well what are the rules what are the parameters and what are the things that maybe not so many people are doing and and could that give me a little bit of an edge or a little bit more fulfillment and satisfaction in what I in how I approach it absolutely and of course both of us use podcasting to both serve our community and also as a vehicle for our businesses in terms of your 21st century creative and and this podcast the creative pen and now we both have podcasts I have books and travel and you have a mouthful of air which are more passion projects but it it is it does take a lot of work and it costs money to produce especially I mean you have very high value production I don't spend as much (laughs) on high value production as you do but if people are thinking oh is is podcasting really worth it and what I mean you talk there about some of the I guess some of the recognition you can get in a community does can it pay for itself or it financially or is it worth it for the reputation and the other ways uh, you can get a return firstly it's absolutely worth it for the pure joy of doing it you know any time that I spend writing or recording this show, including recording my own episodes or interviewing poets, it's a delight. And the time just disappears. And I, I work on it in the mornings typically, and it's lunchtime before I know it. And another really core cool motivation is just connecting with listeners. You know, when I get a response, like the person who said I used to run screaming from poetry, and now you've opened the door. Or if I talk to a poet and they they have a good experience and they felt that they've been able to put themselves out there into a, into the world. That is, you know, absolutely the core of what makes it worth doing. And if that's not there, if you're only doing it because you think, well, I need to do something to get, build my reputation or generate income or sales or whatever, then find some another way of doing it. In terms of time and money, yeah, you're right, you're right, Joe. I am a perfectionist about audio, particularly. And I always want to have high production values and music and I like having the atmospheric soundscapes that Javier Whaler creates for both of my shows. And it's not cheap to do this. So again, just for anybody listening, you don't necessarily have to be as perfectionistic as this. There are lower budget ways of doing a perfectly good show. But in terms of what I wanted to achieve, so my first show, The 21st Century Creative, pays for itself via coaching clients. And I've also recently added a Patreon membership. For the new show, A Mouthful of Air, it's an art project, and I can't really see a lot of commercial potential. I don't really have that commercial interest in it, but I didn't want to compromise on the production quality. So I did something I've never done before, and that's to apply for public funding from Arts Council England. 
because I thought there is value for other people here. This is, it's really a public art project. I'm going to be sharing poems and connecting poets with listeners. So if I do it well, there's going to be a benefit to the listeners. There's going to be a benefit to the poets and there's a benefit to their publishers. I really want this to be my contribution to the poetry world. So I made this argument to the Arts Council. I filled out the longest application form I have ever done in my life. And I'm very pleased to say they responded and they gave me the the full amount of the funding. So thank you very much to Arts Council England for stepping up and doing that. You know, because sometimes I, I hear from creatives who say, well, I just like to be funded to make my art. That hasn't been my experience of how the funding world works. You know, you've always got to sell your ideas. I had to really think hard and make my case and say, this is how it will help me develop as an artist, but also this is what's in it for the audience. This is what's in it for the the public. This is what's in it for the, the poets and their publishers and so on. And whatever you're doing, if you want to do it at a high level and you get it out into the world, and even if you're giving it away for free, like a podcast, you, you've still got to sell it. You've got to sell the idea to advertisers or patrons or clients or sponsors or a funding body. And then you've got to go out there and sell it to people who have got the listeners, who've got an infinite choice of other podcasts that they could be listening to. And I actually really love that you've done that because, again, in the same way that you talked about the different kinds of publishing, it's not either or. And it's the same. You have a coaching business. Uh, you're an indie. You sell uh, online courses and, and you have done anyway in the past. And now you're applying for a grant. I think it's the same. It's like you don't have to just do one thing. It doesn't have to be all grants or all indie or all coaching. And I, that's, I think that's what I want to encourage people uh, is to think wider than just the one thing and I mean obviously we're both full-time creative entrepreneurs (laughs) so we can branch into these other things and and I guess that I've been thinking about this a lot actually as we speak today I've just put out my 10-year anniversary post this will it will be in the past when this goes out but this idea that after a number of years your confidence perhaps grows and your income is steady enough in other areas that you can actually branch out into things that you might have been putting off because you couldn't afford it in other ways and now you can and now's the right time to branch into these more passion projects yeah definitely i mean looking back it was years ago i had the idea for the two shows i wanted to do a poetry show and i wanted to do the coaching show and i started with the coaching one partly because I was reasonably confident it would make money and therefore it would pay for itself and all the equipment I was buying, not to mention the the training and and whatever, but also because creatively the poetry show is more complicated and more demanding emotionally and there's more people involved, there's more moving parts. And so I'm really glad I did the coaching show first because although it's longer, in terms of production, it's simpler to do. So I think, yeah, you're right that that you, again, you've got to think a bit strategically about, well, if I do this first, that will get me to there. And then when I get to there, then I think I will have more options creatively, hopefully financially and business-wise. Brilliant. So we're out of time. So where can people find you and the podcasts and everything you do online? Well, starting with The Poetry Show, which is my new baby, so I want to introduce it to everybody. It is a mouthful of air on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all the usual podcasting platforms. The website is a mouthfulofair.fm. And if you go to the website, you can sign up for an email subscription, even if you listen to the audio podcast via an app, and you will get a transcript of every single episode, including the text of the poem. So if you want to read the poem as well as listen to it, go to a mouthfulofair.fm and sign up for the email version and you can experience the amphibious nature of poetry. And then on social media, we are a mouthful of air on Twitter and Facebook and on Instagram. I'm now an Insta poet. Uh, The poems are going up at air poets on Instagram. And then if you're interested in the other podcast, the 21st Century Creative, that is 21st Century Creative on all usual places. And my coaching site is lateralaction.com. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Mark. That was great. 
Thank you, Joe. I, I really enjoyed this. You took me to some unusual places for a podcast interview. So thanks. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Mark and that our discussion on art and business gave you some things to think about because uh, both of us started second podcasts that are not really monetized in order to delve deeper into our passions and they are fueling new creative ideas in turn and helping us connect with new people so it's never too late to start like if you are interested in podcasting then uh, as Mark and I have done <laughs> you can always start something new if you're poetry curious or already a poetry lover head on over to a mouthful of air so coming up this week Another futurist in between episode, this time with the founders of Creatokia, the world of digital originals. Yes, it is another show on NFTs, but the reason I've been doing so many is because this is such an important area. And I hope that by the time you've listened to these episodes, you're, you're going to understand a lot more about the emerging possibilities in this space. Uh, it is... <laughs> definitely still early days. And in fact, I will be commenting on the YA authors whose NFT project flamed out and why I think that happened. Uh, because mainly because it's early days, but I'll talk about that in the in-between episode. Next Monday, I'm talking about something many of us want to achieve from book to Netflix show with Chrissy Metch, all about which projects are worth pitching and how the process works. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time. <laughs>